President Joe Biden is pushing a new $106 billion spending package in Congress. It's not for bridges or schools, not to repair public housing, not to create good jobs, but to give a massive boost to the war machine. Biden's bill includes spending for Ukraine, Israel, Taiwan, and to increase the U.S. military presence at the U.S.-Mexican border. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content several days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you, if you're not yet, to become a patron today. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out all of his work at rdwolff.com. That's rdwolff.com. Professor Wolff, welcome back. Thank you, Brian. Glad to be here. Richard, I want to focus in a little bit more on the issue of military spending. You know, before the Korean War and shortly after World War II, the U.S. military demobilized. There was a mass movement of U.S. soldiers who, had, who were stationed in Asia. They were, it was called the Bring the Boys Home Now movement. That was not in Vietnam. That started right after World War II. American soldiers didn't want to be in Japan. They didn't want to be in the Philippines. They thought the war's over. We want to go home to our families. We want to go back to work. And the U.S. government actually demobilized the U.S. military. So there wasn't a military industrial complex like as happened in earlier wars. The war machine was demobilized. The industries were reconverted to civilian industry. And then around 1947, 48, the economic picture started to darken in the United States. Now, for everybody to remember, prior to World War, the U.S. was in a Great Depression. It started in the U.S. It spread to the entire capitalist world. One out of every four workers in the United States was officially unemployed. You know, a really terrible time for working class families. But the entire capitalist system basically didn't work anymore. And then World War II militarized the economy. Everybody suddenly had a job or they were in the military, so they had that job. Then the war ends, the demobilization of the U.S. military starts to take place, and the economy started to go back into recession. And then here comes the Korean War in 1950, and the U.S. mobilizes 25 other nations under the banner of the United Nations to go to war to invade Korea. They stay there for, well, in the southern part, they're still there, but they stayed in Korea for three years. 
That's when the military industrial complex is born. That's when we have the beginning of a permanent war machine, funding for war, funding for weapons, funding for military stuff goes on as if the country was at war, even though it's no longer technically at war. And I want to talk to you, one, about how important was that or is that to the stability of capitalism? And also, what's the impact on the big picture for any economy when you spend so much money, including R&D, research and development money, not for new things that human beings actually need or can use, but for military equipment, which can only be used to kill, to destroy, and ultimately to be destroyed. Anyway, I want to just look at those two questions together, if we could. Okay, let's review a little bit your history. You outlined most of it. I want to drive home a couple of points. The most important event of the 20th century was the Great Depression. From 1929 to 1941, we lived in a country that was permanently, for that period of time, deeply distressed. If 25% of the people are unemployed, one in four, it means every single American family had either mama, papa, grandpa, cousin, Aunt Louise, or somebody else unemployed, which meant that the money earned by those who still had jobs had to help out the people who didn't have a job, which means everybody, working or not, was under extreme stress. The American working class turned to the political left in that time. They elected and re-elected three times the most progressive democratic president we've ever had. And they put into place the social security system, which we never had, the unemployment compensation system, which we never had, the first minimum wage, which we had never had, and the first public works program employing around 15 million people and taking them off the unemployment rolls. And this was pushed by something called the New Deal Coalition. The unions, above all the CIO, two socialists and one communist party who who all had tens of thousands of active members in the United States, a time unlike any in American history before or since, and it terrified the business community. They were terrified, not of the unemployment, which we had had before, but of an unemployment that had an unmistakable left-wing orientation dominant within it. That's why, as you rightly say, when World War II was over and the people who had finally gotten jobs out of the Great Depression, the millions who either were put into the military or given jobs manufacturing the guns, the bullets, the uniforms, the tanks, the planes that the Army and the Navy used, when they were demobilized, when the soldiers took off their uniform and there was no longer a job making the uniforms that weren't necessary, here's what happened, and this is crucial. The business community of the United States was terrified that we would slip, as you put it, back into the recession from 29 to 41 that 1945 would be it. And to drive home what they were afraid of, 
the still relatively progressive Democratic Party pushed through in 1946 the Employment Act of the United States, which made it for the first time the obligation of the United States government to ensure, in the original language of the bill, full employment, in the amended language of the bill, maximum employment, whatever the hell that means, this showed that the politics were still there. You are not going to deprive people of their jobs. And so the business community was horrified. And their horrified response took two forms. Number one, get rid of everybody who talks like that. Every socialist, every communist, anybody who even looked, smelled, or tasted like the New Deal would be a pariah, would be accused of communist sympathies, hounded out of their jobs. That was the first step. The second step was, don't forget, though, you still have to get people in a job. And the private sector couldn't do that. It wasn't strong enough. That's why we had the depression in the first place, because the private capitalist system here couldn't do what it needs to do. And so they turned to the government. You've got to make sure we can give enough people jobs to blunt the appeal of the socialists and the communists. We're going to go after them. We're going to hound them out. We're going to have an anti-communist crusade for the next, as we now know, 75 years. That was the outlook in 45. But we also have to give people jobs. And the way we're going to do it is we turn to the government, which is what this country does every time private capitalism stumbles. It turns to the government. That's why we bailed out the banks in 2008. That's why we're now bailing out our high-tech industry, because the Chinese are outcompeting them. And what did the government do? Well, you nailed it. One of the things the government did is to create a permanent huge military operation. The government now spends close to a trillion dollars a year hiring, you know, hundreds of thousands of people in the military and providing jobs, producing the guns, the missiles, the tanks, the artillery shells. And when we're not doing it just for our own military, we are always engaged somewhere in the world where we get to give military support, i.e. buying from American companies the guns and shells we then deliver to the Israelis or the Ukrainians or whoever else is in the battle of the month or the battle of the year. And notice, this is all worked out carefully. If it weren't, the first reaction people would have to this new over $100 billion plan would be to say, I thought we were in an inflation where it's important not to pump money into the economy because that'll feed the inflation. A hundred plus billion on top of the equivalent amount already given, paid out for Ukraine, you're talking an, an inflation. You're asking the Federal Reserve to have interest rates high to slow down the inflation, while another part of the government, the Defense Department, is pumping money into the economy. 
Where is someone saying that? We're going to have trillions in deficit in the government's budget for this fiscal year and next fiscal year. And an extra hundred and plus billion a la Biden is going to make the deficit worse. Where is the wailing and gnashing of teeth about these so-called problems? They're gone. And you know why? Because the system is in very deep trouble. I, I've got gray hair. I can assure you I've been watching the American economy closely for all of my adult life. I've never seen it in worse condition than it is now. Too many problems kicked down the road for too long a time, too many imperial ambitions, whether it's Ukraine or Taiwan or now in the Middle East again. It can't handle it. And that's the story of every empire when it collapsed. It overreached itself. It tried to do in a moment what it used to be able to do, but now that it's been declining, it can't anymore. But the people who lead it can't face it. So they keep saying, oh, we can throw another. The statement last week that most blew my mind came from Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen when she said to the disbelieving ears of the world, no problem about the Middle East because, I quote now, we can afford two wars at the same time. You know what that mentality leads to? The end of the ability to do anything anymore. And doing this stuff with the military at a time when we know internally we're barely able to govern ourselves. Look at the spectacle of the Republican Party. Look for this at the spectacle of the Democratic Party, which is in that much better shape, riven apart as it is by the gap between the, the Bernie Sanders types and everybody else. This is a system that is falling apart all around us. And all we get from our leaders is the pretense that it isn't happening. Yeah, I was quite amazed by the Janet Yellen comment too, Richard. I mean, you know, she has this this image of being sort of a, someone from academia, a professor, sort of kind of a f warm, fuzzy, friendlier figure, not like the some of the hardliners in the government. And here she is saying, oh, no, we can afford two wars. Of course, it's going to be other people who are going to do all the bleeding and suffering and dying, but we can afford it. And, you know, Richard, most of that $106 billion supposedly for Israel and supposedly for Ukraine, most of that money is not going to leave the country. Most of that money is going to be taken directly to Lockheed Martin, to the other biggest capitalist war contractors. It's a kind of just a subsidy to those companies. And, and you know, when I ask you how important is this subsidy by the government to the contractor, to the capitalists who make weapons, you answered that pretty comprehensively. I mean, this if we look at this in a historical perspective, it's hard to imagine how the U.S. capitalist class and the U.S. capitalist economy would be doing short of military and other forms of state intervention. Socialism is always described as a, a state-driven economy and capitalism is the free market where, you know, rough and tumble risk takers from business, 
They gamble, they take risks, they innovate. And because of their hard work, their innovation, their, their courage, you know, great new commodities are born. And the consumer is the ultimate determiner of whether a commodity and a company succeeds or not, because it's up to them what they buy. But here we have this big part of the economy which the consumer has nothing to do with. The consumer is not touched by, doesn't benefit from. It's a straight out subsidy to the capitalist corporations. And if you said to the American worker or any person in the United States, look, we're going to tax you almost a trillion dollars. It's about 960 billion now, almost a trillion dollars a year, say for something other than defense, there'd be a hue and cry about it. But when you call it national defense, then it's to protect people, it's to help people, it's to keep us safe. So it's the perfect pretext for the capitalists to have the masses of working class folks fork over their hard earned tax dollars to subsidize the capitalists. Now, I say this, Richard, and you know, as we kind of move towards the end, I wanna also frame it that we're in an election cycle. Joe Biden is you know, on the campaign trail, so to speak. He's, he's actually not agreeing to speak anywhere because I don't think that will work out well for him. He's also not going to participate in debates. I don't think that's going to work out well for him. But what they are doing, what his campaign is doing, is spending enormous amounts on TV ads very early in the campaign cycle. And they're in all of these battleground states. And the strategy, Richard, and I know you'll think this is like the example of ultimate wisdom, is to have Biden talking about how wonderful the economy is, and all of the accomplishments of his administration as it relates to the economy. And then, as I'm reading the articles about this in the last two days, his advisors are, quote, perplexed because, and I'm paraphrasing, but it's almost verbatim, perplexed because his, quote, stubbornly low approval rating is not improving in spite of this flood of TV ads about how great the economy is. I mean, when you put this all together and you talk to us all the time about incompetence, but when you look at the way this is being presented, the way it's being organized, I mean, it's in a way sort of a miracle that there's not a greater sort of revolutionary upheaval in the United States, given the level of criminality, you know, corruption and incompetence all rolled into one. And what are we offering the people of the United States when you know, drinking water is disappearing when clean air is being menaced, when extreme weather events are happening all over the place and destroying people's homes and families and communities. We're offering them $106 billion or a, maybe it'll be another trillion dollars for death and destruction. It's an amazing moment in U.S. political history. I could not agree more, but I, I will push back a little, Brian. I don't think it's really incompetence. I mean, I understand what you're saying, and there are certainly examples of that. But when you have what looks like incompetence in so many areas, the president talking about a good economy, I must tell you, I think I'm living on a different planet. What, what's the matter with him? The reason the mass of the people don't like him is because the economy isn't good. And that thought should have crossed his mind rather than wondering, as many of his lieutenants do, why the people are so befuddled as to imagine that the economy isn't good. The inflation is destructive. The high interest rates are destructive. The effects of the pandemic are still with us. COVID is all around the corner. 
corner. Of course people are in trouble, and you haven't done much about it, Jack, with your big bills on infrastructure. You haven't addressed it. That money, those big bills, that money mostly goes into the hands of large corporations who may fix the roads for a while, but most of that money will go into the dividends and the high salaries because they're part of the American economy. That's the problem, not competence. It's a system that isn't working anymore and doesn't show signs. And it's kind of desperate to be involved in wars all over the world that you don't really have to be involved in in order to focus on what you need to do, which is to deal with a dysfunctional economy. But that's a taboo. The people who run this economy will not allow you to face it. Let me end with a little story. There's a conference going on right now as we speak in Riyadh, the capital of Saudi Arabia. It is hosted by the leader of that country, who's best known in this country as the guy who ordered, apparently, the killing of the Washington Post journalist that we know about. In that meeting are all of the heads of the biggest banks here in the United States and many of the biggest corporations. They're there because they want that very rich wealth fund of the country of Saudi Arabia to invest the, get ready, $700 billion they have to spend. Weird in this world to have that much money in the hands of three or four people sitting in Riyadh. But all the big corporate leaders, especially the bankers, are in Riyadh right now, sucking up to get a piece of that money. And to open the conference, the leader of Saudi Arabia spoke with passion about the legitimate interests of the Palestinians that have to be attended to in the current crisis. That may not be what the American politicians talk about, but the people who pull the strings of the American politicians are perfectly happy to have them talk up Israel for that audience while they're busy sucking up to the enemies of Israel because it's in the money for them. These are signs of a breakdown in a system's functioning. It's too blatant. It's too far out there. It's too extreme for the mass of the people to keep supporting. And that will be the last chapter of this sad decline of the American empire. When the American people say enough, they did that in the 1930s. That's why we reviewed the history a few minutes ago. Think about what has happened just in Anglo-American politics. A few years ago, there was real hope and change in England around Jeremy Corbyn and in the United States around Bernie Sanders. How far in the other directions have we gone when we got Boris Johnson and now the unbelievable Rishi Sunak a wealthy person with no clue about what to do. And here in the United States, Trump versus Biden. You couldn't, if you were a great novelist or playwright, come up with a more pathetic transformation of your politics than we have seen in the Anglo-American world. And that's a sign of empire disintegration. 
Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolf.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.